And I think that one of the great misunderstandings is that people think those events change your life. They don't change your life. That's actually a lie. Those things don't change your life. What they do is they magnify whatever's going on. So, you know, Oprah said money doesn't make people mean or generous. It, it's a magnifying glass. It makes people more of what they are. A devastating event like that does more of that. What it brought out in me was it brought out my anger, my frustration, all the issues I'd not dealt with. And by the way, at that point, I'm 32 years old and I've been working on myself since I was 19. So I'm not a newbie, right? So I've done a lot of the work and a lot of deep work. But suddenly all of the stuff that I'd not dealt with, that I didn't want to deal with, came to the surface. And when people would ask me, how you doing? You know, I was a ghetto kid. I was a leader. I'd been a boxer and a martial artist. You know, I'm not, I'm not a wimp. So when people would ask me, how you doing? I'd say, with my jaw wide closed, I'm great. I'm coming back. Right? But the truth of the matter is, the evolution of life is there is no back. Back doesn't exist. There's only forward. And it's a trap to think I'm going to go back. You're not going to go back. If you're going to go back, you're going to go down a downward spiral that's not going to work for you. That's Dove Barron, and I'm Brian Falchuk. The Do-A-Day Podcast. Will you hear from the most inspiring people who have been through hard times, overcome them, and have turned around to help others with what they've learned? I'm your host, Brian Falchuk. I know because I've lived it myself. I've written about it in my book, Do-A-Day, and that's why I'm bringing you this show. Remember, today's a new day. Go out and do it. Hey, day doers, welcome to another episode of the Do A Day podcast. I have a really powerful person on today. His name is Dove Barron. He, uh, <laughs> he's colorful, he's energized, he's powerful. Um, this is the first time I'm putting out an episode that has the explicit rating on it because I realized pretty soon into it, uh, me trying to edit out any of the, the true doveness of it is just going to... Well, it's going to take too long and it's going to take away something like there's something to the power of it. So fair warning early on, uh, not safe for work, not safe for kids. Not that it would be anyway per se, but let's just be sure everyone knows what they're getting in for. Um, who is he? So Dove, well, like a lot of people who have been on my show, he had me on his uh, and it's that's part of why he's here because of that connection and the power I felt from him. And uh, as we were catching up, before we started recording, when I was on his show, he's telling me his story. And I was like, look, I've been listening to, uh, to his show. I've been reading his work. I've seen him all around. I had no clue just, just what he came from. And, you know, that's what this show's all about. It's about pulling those stories out. So in a nutshell, uh, he is one of Inc. Magazine's, or actually he is Inc. Magazine's top 100 leadership speakers. A couple years in a row, he has been cited in all these different places as like the guy to go to on leadership and uh, especially in the speaking scene. He's a best-selling author. His latest book is called Fiercely Loyal, How High-Performing Companies Develop and Retain Top Talent. Um He's got this great podcast, Leadership and Loyalty. It's uh, it's on iTunes, but it's also on Roku, and it's it's been produced as a TV show, so you can see it a number of different ways. Um, it's pretty amazing, and he's all over the place. So he's had his work featured on CNN, CBS, Pulse, Yahoo Finance, the Boston Globe, um, Business in Vancouver, USA Today, all over the place. 
and he's connected to some of the most amazing people in the world because he's talked to them, he's worked with them, uh, he's had them on his show, or he's spoken with them, and just fostering this whole drive of leadership. It's, uh, it's pretty amazing. And it comes from a place of authenticity, of um, valuing others, valuing yourself. You know, it's, it's really powerful, powerful stuff. And there's a way that Dove delivers it that just hits right to the heart of you instantaneously. Um, talks a lot about purpose. So obviously, he's going to resonate with me, but there's something he said during the interview that you guys are about to get to hear where he's like, you know you're living your purpose when the work you're doing will impact the lives of people whose names you don't know. And then he went a step beyond that. And he's like, even better if there are names you will never know. So, it, I mean, to me, that's like such a strong challenge to just completely take yourself back from, I don't know, any notion of getting something from it, from your work. Um, when you talk about helping others, like making it even bigger to be about helping others you'll never even know existed. That's pretty, um, that's pretty profound. When you think of it that way, it's like, wow, you know, I, uh, I've really thought about it that way, but that is a whole other level of impact than I maybe ever considered having. Um, such a powerful guy. His story is pretty shocking. So, and I'm trying to think which piece of it is the most shocking. Dove has died a number of times. He fell off the side of a mountain. Uh, there's a lot more to it. I'm not going to try to do it justice. I'm going to let him tell it himself. So let's jump right in. Um, yeah, prepare yourself. It's a, a very high energy, high power episode. Like I said, a little bit of profanity. Um, so brace yourself for that if you're not one who who's cool with it, or maybe skip this episode. But I would suggest you listen, maybe with headphones on, and uh, and take it in. You are about to be moved. That's worth it. So let's jump into the episode with Dove Baron. Dove Baron, thank you so much for joining me today. My absolute pleasure, mate. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to share. I'm excited to serve. I so look, I've I've seen your work. I've been watching you for a while. Um, you know, whether it's on Inc. Magazine or or your podcast or wherever. Um, mm -hmm. What I didn't know until we were talking before you had me on your show for our sort of pre-call. And I told mm. you about this show and you were like, well, I've got a story and you, you hit me with a little bit of it and I don't want to give it away, but I was totally blown away. I would never had, I, I didn't know the backstory behind what brought you to, uh, to what you work on right now. And I would not mm. have assumed that. And the more I've dug in, the more speechless blown away ish I get. <laughs> um, so really, I'm, I'm really excited to bring that out and, um, and hear all the details that I just personally haven't heard too. So I'm sure the listeners will enjoy it, but I almost don't care because yeah. I'm curious. But usually that, work, <laughs> that works out symbiotically. Well, like we both get something. Well, yeah. yeah. Um, can you just a nutshell of what you do today, and then we'll we'll dig into what got you there. Sure. Um, I work in leadership. Um, I work in several formats. One is obviously I work one on one with high level leaders and entrepreneurs, people who are athletes, entertainers, CEOs, C-suite leaders, uh, entrepreneurs, coaches, all those kinds of people, people who are already successful but want, wonder what the next level is. 
So that's the private work that I do. I also, uh, of course, speak around the world um, on leadership, uh, particularly on purpose-driven leadership, which is the most important part. And companies bring me in to help them find their purpose and so we can develop purpose-driven leaders, creating purpose-driven organizations. So that's the work that we do uh, corporately. Purpose-driven leadership. And of course, as you know, I have a a podcast and a write for, I think, 17 outlets, and I have a couple of TV channels, so a couple of things going on on the side as well. You're, put, you're putting your message out there in a big way. A little bit. Yeah. A little bit. A little bit. <laughs> a little bit more than a little bit, but yeah. Um, so you were you were born a leadership expert, right? There's, there's yeah. no backstory well, to it. Uh, well, actually, you know, it's, it's a, but it's interesting that you should say that because in many ways, I don't know if I was born an expert, but I was born into leadership. How so? I, was born in, I was born in a ghetto in northern England, um, which I committed to leaving by the time I was 14. But I was the eldest kid of a bunch of kids. I have nine, There's nine of us in total. So I was the eldest kid. So obviously, I was pushed into a leadership position inside of the family organization. Mm. Um, I looked around at what I saw, and I was a very different kid. I did not want what the people around me wanted. I saw crime. I saw violence. I saw addiction at every possible turn. I saw men beating on women. I saw all those horrible things and just went, I don't want that. I don't want that. I want something else. And the fascinating thing to me as a child was, and I can remember having this conversation when I was 10 or 11 years old, being fascinated by why people did dumb shit that they knew didn't work. I was fascinated with, I would see my aunt date the same guy with a new face. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. And I would see my mom do the same thing. I would see my, 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 friend, my, my parents' friends and relatives repeat these cycles that were just stupid. Yeah. And I, now, I, having said that, let me raise my hand and say, I have done many stupid things. Sure. <laughs> I, I'm not exclusive of that, but I was fascinated. That was the beginning of my my. Uh, understanding of psychology uh, then, and I was also a different kid in that when I was seven years old, my mom shipped me off to the rabbis because she thought I was possessed, because I would see things that people didn't see, and I would talk about those things. So I was never like your average run-of-the-mill white bread kid. I was this different kid right from the start. What I was going to ask you like why you came to that conclusion at 14, but maybe that's part of what you're saying is something was different about you and how you looked at the world versus those around you. Have you, have you ever why figured out like, the, why is it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Why, why I came to the conclusion that I was leaving. Yeah. Well, well why more given, you know, the world that you were growing up in, everyone mm-hmm. seemed to be doing the same. You were different. Why do you think you were different? Do you think there was something that sparked it or it's just this perception you have of the world was just different from this just who you are. Um, I think a lot of things happened in my life that were catalytic of that. I th- I, I don't be- I, I believe in nurture over nature, and I can scientifically show you the evidence of that. Epigenetics proves that. Um, but I do think there was something inherent within me that allowed me to see the world uh, with an objectivity and uh, a divergent thinking process, a creative thinking process that was different than the conformity that surrounded me. Part of where I grew up was 
you know, do what everybody else does and you'll be okay. Yeah. Get a decent job with a pension, you know, and stay there for 40 years. That was never even slightly appealing to me. I looked different. I dressed different. I always was different. Yeah. So that I knew that I never fit in. See, most of us uh, who are more creative go through an experience in our lives where we get to be somewhere between about usually between 10 and 14. And there's a reason for that in the psychological developmental stages where we go, am I really from this family? Maybe I'm adopted, right? Maybe I'm adopted. And then you realize, "Eh, no, I'm not adopted. So what is it? And most people at that point go, well, I better conform to belong. I, on the other hand, went, I don't belong. Mm. So where do I belong? And that was the drive for me to go out into the world and discover where I belonged. Yeah. To discover where where did my thinking, where did who I am fit in the world? And I didn't. I couldn't yeah. find it. That was the that was part of the great lesson of life is that I couldn't find a place to fit, which is beautiful. Really interesting. I'm curious as the oldest, did you have a sense of obligation like you couldn't go? Like your siblings oh. needed you, the family needed you. Absolutely. But um, I got over part of that by the time I was 15. I left home at 15, um, but was still very bonded to my siblings and felt responsible for them. You know, I'd been a a secondary parent to them when my mom had several jobs. Um, She was a single parent for a while. uh, And my stepfather was there. And, you know, there was all kinds of other problems. But I felt that that certainly that responsibility and it was hard. But I also, you know, just to fast forward a little bit, I did leave the country at 21 years old. I promised myself at 14, at 21 I left. You should know, and just in total transparency for everybody, I left having been married already for five years. Wow. And I had a two-year-old daughter. Wow. So I got married at 16 years old. And when I left, it wasn't because I wanted to leave my wife or my kid behind. It was because I had said very clearly when we met that I'm leaving the country and I'm going abroad. And and she was very excited to do that. Yeah. But her pull as the eldest child of her family and being connected to all of her family members couldn't leave that behind. And that pulling me was so fierce that it was... It was unbearable to stay where I was. I've often pictured myself staying, and I know exactly who I would have become, and it isn't a pretty picture. It's not. I would not have been a decent bloke. I would not have liked myself. So she stayed with your child, and mm-hmm. you left. What, I did. What's your relationship with them today? Uh, my daughter and I are very close. I just came back from Australia. I was with my daughter, uh, with my son-in-law, and my three grandkids who live in Australia. Um, I'm very close to my daughter. We have a great relationship. Um, And her and I, apart from a short period of time, have always had a pretty great relationship. Um, Her mother hated me, of course, um, and I totally don't blame her for that. And she didn't hate me for anything I did other than that I wouldn't stay. She Mm -hmm. hated me for not being willing to stay. I was willing to continue and work it out if she would leave. But I, I just knew that I would emotionally, mentally, and spiritually drowned if I stayed there. And I knew that about myself. I, I knew that it was, I, I felt every day I lived there, I felt like I was being suffocated. Yeah. And you had been already sitting on that feeling for seven years with clarity. Yeah. 
Yeah. With absolute clarity. Yeah. So where did you go? Um, well, I began a journey to travel the world to study with different spiritual masters. That was my original journey because, as I said, when I was seven, I was a weird kid. I saw things weird. My mom shipped me off to the rabbis, thought I was possessed, and I started to study with those rabbis the spiritual realm. And by the time I was 11, I started studying prana yoga, which is the yoga of breath. And then I made this commitment then to travel the world and study with the different spiritual teachers. So I lived and studied with rabbis, um, with Buddhist monks. Uh, the dean of the Vedanta University in Bombay was my teacher. Um, so I studied Kabbalah, Vedanta, which is Hindu philosophy, Buddhism, Gnostic Christianity, and the Tao. So I studied all those five religions and lived and immersed myself in those because that's what I love to do. I love to immerse myself. I'm an immersive personality. So I initially went to France and Italy, and then from there lived in New Brunswick, East Coast Canada for a year and lived and studied with rabbis there and then uh, was in Asia and Indonesia and then lived in Australia for many years and then came uh, to West Coast Canada. Where you've been since? Where I've been since, which is my home now. I've been here longer than I was ever, ever anywhere else. So a journey of enlightenment through immersion. Absolutely. What? Where where does where does the the shocking story that was like I, you know the the thing mm. I was alluding to before where does that come sure. in? And what uh, is that, that comes that, that comes in in 1990. So I started my speaking career in in 84. Um, I had businesses. I was very successful in business. I ran businesses in the UK, in Canada, and in Australia. Um, but at the same time while running those businesses was studying, first of all, the metaphysical studies I just talked about. But then in, then I started studying psychology and I studied and became a, uh, studied to become a, a therapist and a counselor, studied uh, family dynamics and human dynamics. Um, and then started studying what's called the psychology of excellence. Today is called psychology of leadership. Mm-hmm. And then in 84, stumbled into quantum physics and started studying that. Stumbled into quantum, okay. Yeah, I mean, literally yeah. <laughs> stumbled into it in a bookstore. So I stumbled into those three things and got very – so between those three things, quantum physics, metaphysics, and psychology. And so in my, in my business that I had, people would come in and we'd have these great conversations. And one day a friend said, uh, you, I want you to come speak for my company. And I'm like, about what? Yeah. He goes, I don't care. And I go, what do you mean? He says, you can speak on anything you want. I said, how long for? He goes, an hour. I'm like, ah! Are you kidding yeah. me? That's, no, I can't speak for an hour. I'm not a speaker. And he goes, I just want you to come speak for an hour about anything you want. And I said, <coughs> I eventually I agreed to 30 minutes, which seemed like insane. Um, but he had, a, he had, he was a very, very smart business guy. He goes, he says, but I have one condition. I go, here we go. Right now you should let me just pause there and go back and say, this is 1984. Go online, Google pictures of men in 1984. In 1984, I had hair that was chest length. It was down here. Um, I wore earrings that were big enough you could swing parrots off them. Um, I had the designer stubble of Miami Vice. Yeah. Um, my hair is naturally very curly, ringlet curly. It wasn't in a ponytail. It was hanging out. And I'd been a bodybuilder since I was 19. So I had five years of bodybuilding. When you're 24 and you're a bodybuilder, Everybody has to know. It's important. <laughs> so you wear shirts that are way too tight. Yeah. And so you show off every muscle, which I was doing. Um, and on that particular day, that's what I was wearing. I was wearing a skin-tight T-shirt, ripped jeans, 
hair was wild and, out and all the rest of it. Now, you should know that I also wore these beautiful handmade suits. Okay. And that's the business he was in. That's how I had met him. He made my suits. Okay. So I, and he said, here's my condition. I want you to come looking exactly how you do today. So I'm in a tight muscle shirt, ripped jeans, crazy hair, big earrings. And I said, well, can I put my hair in a ponytail and wear my suit? And he goes, nope. I want you to look just like this. Now, he owned a national menswear company. So I show up on the day, and as instructed, I put my head in the door and look down at this long boardroom of everybody who looks like Gordon Gecko from Wall Street. Yeah. As, and they're all uptight and, you know, very 80s suits. And these guys are giving me the nod, like what we call in England the bugger off nod, yeah. which is bugger off, you're in the wrong room. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I just smiled as I was instructed and waited. And then Steve said, let's welcome our speaker. And these guys, like, clunk jaws hit the, hit the table. Yeah. Like, why has he got this guy in? And honestly, I don't remember what I said, <laughs> but I remember what I said initially. Okay. And what I said was, this was 80s, very big racist issues happening with the Aboriginal people of Australia. And I said, uh, put your hand up if you're a racist. And of course, you can imagine. Yeah. Nobody puts their hand up. And I said, okay, put your hand up if you would judge somebody by the color of the skin or in any way by the way they look. And again, nobody puts their hand up. And I said, you're a bunch of effing liars. Yeah. That was my exact words. Yeah. Every one of you judged me by the way that I look. You decided what my intelligence was and what my worth was. And what you don't know is I'm your customer. Uh, That's how I know Steve, because I originally met him. Fortunately, when I came in your store, he was there and he fit me up with a suit. And we've been friends ever since. And you would have written me off and you would have lost a great customer. And at that point, I figure I've shit the bed and I'm done. Yeah. But I look over at Steve and he looks like his face has been cut open because he's <laughs> so excited and happy. He was obviously much smarter than me. Yeah. And if the story ended there, I would be a hero, but it doesn't. Because he was very happy. I walked away. Two, three weeks later, he comes back and he says, Alistair would like you to speak for his company. I'm like, oh, yeah, great. I'm into this now. This is cool. And um, I go to, I'm about to go speak, but I, I don't know what speakers do. So I start researching and I discover that, that speakers have short hair uh, in the early 80s, clean shaven or a mustache at most. And they wear the uniform, which is blue suit, white shirt, red tie, Peyton shoes. What do yeah. I do? I cut my hair off, have a mustache uh, and wear the uniform. Yeah. And I die a death the next event. And I continue to die for about four years, oh. three, four years. Um, and then I move to Canada and I start to take my career off and it starts to take off like a rocket. I'm extremely successful speaking all over Canada, US. I've already spoken all over Australia. In 1990, I'm the most successful I've ever been. And I'm exhausted. And I come back from this crazy tour and we take a few days off. I do and a mate of mine, we go up to a place just outside of Whistler, which is, of course, where the Winter Olympics in 2010 was. But it's not winter, it's spring, it's, it's June, it's early, late spring, early summer, and it's a gorgeous day. And we go for a hike, and it's wonderful, and uh, we go to a place called Brandywine Falls, yeah. which is this magnificent, majestic waterfall. It's glacial water that drops off the cliff for 200 feet, and you stand at the top, and you're just taking the majesty of it. It's spectacular. But back in those days, I was an adrenaline junkie. So I said to my mate, let's climb down 
and let's go see if we can get behind the waterfall. Have you ever been close to a waterfall, Brian? Yeah. yeah. Not that so big, know, but yeah. But you know the spray, right? Yeah. I mean, it's enormous. Yeah. So there's a 70 mile an hour spray coming at us. We're in running shoes and we're scrambling, scrambling over these wet rocks and we get behind the waterfall. And when you get when you're in that environment, there is negative ions which are positive to the body. And I'm supercharged and I feel like Superman. I can do anything. So when we come out on the other side, because I'm a pure adrenaline junkie, I do all kinds of crazy shit all the time. I say to my friend, let's not go on the hike path. Let's climb the face. Oh. Soaking wet. Yeah. Now, if you think mountain climbing is crazy, they have ropes. They have safety lines. Yeah. You think free climbing is crazy because they don't have ropes and safety lines, but they have chalk and the right footwear. We're soaking wet. No chalk. Nothing. Yeah. And at about 120 feet, which is 12 stories, I reached for a rock. That rock actually dislodged a bigger rock that hit me in the face, bam, and knocked me down. Fortunately, knocked me unconscious, which probably saved my life. Yeah. And smashed me to pieces on the boulders below. God. Not gravel, but rocks. Boulders. 120 oh. feet. Yeah. I bounced halfway, which flipped me around because I was falling backwards. It flipped me around, so it pushed my hip out, yeah. flipped me around, and I came down flat onto my face, smashed to pieces. Which, again, probably saved you because you didn't land on your back, which yeah. would have broken. and yeah, Would have broken everything, yeah. Wow. So you survived, obviously. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. yeah, I survived. Um, and... Uh, my, like I said, my buddy was with me and there's a whole dramatic story to that. Uh, I'll tell you a tiny little bit of it in that, uh, he scrambled down and through this mush that was my face, somehow I was able to articulate, move me, but well, we all know you don't move yeah. somebody in that situation. And for whatever reason, and he said later, I don't know why I heard that or what he said, I'm not even sure you said it because I just knew to do it. And I did. And he moved me three feet and then the rock face collapsed and buried no the place. Way. Yeah. Wow. So there's a whole big story around getting out and how I got out, but eventually it got to the hospital, got to the mountain hospital. And basically they said I was just too messed up. They couldn't deal with me and they were going to ship me to the city. Um, the original x-ray showed I had a broken back, broken clavicle, uh, broken leg, many broken ribs, uh, broken neck, and, of course, my face was completely gone and probably massive internal bleeding, and they weren't sure if I'd ever be able to walk again. Yeah. So that was the initial diagnosis. In the one-hour ride from there to the city hospital, uh, I began to use some of the practices I'd learned from my – I would come around momentarily, yeah. and I would use the practices that I'd learned from my spiritual teachers – and by the time I got to the second hospital, this is one of life's mysteries, there was nothing broken below my face. Well, I'm, and, and I was refused <laughs> the x-rays when we asked for them. They refused to give us the original x-rays. And then they lost them. <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. See, I, I think for people people who maybe weren't alive at the time not that it was that long ago but unfortunately it was that long ago yeah, cell phones it, these things didn't exist right this is early nope. 90s it was 1990 1990 okay yeah so you mentioned gordon gecko 
who that scene mm-hmm. in Wall Street has got this giant, like, huge cell phone, which at the time was small and portable, but you look at it now and you'll laugh because he's holding it against his face and his hand's probably like six inches away from his head because this thing's so big. <laughs> yeah. That was not a normal thing for people to have. And if they did, there was no cell reception on mountains. You know, it's like yeah. now you can get reception in parts of, you know, major, major climbs. Yeah. You guys are, I mean obviously we don't have time like the whole extraction story and how to even get you help it it's like i can't even believe that but what you're just saying then and and yeah so there's no proof and things vanish but like for you to be that broken up apply the mindful activities and and i mean you must have been in such excruciating pain to be able to devastating yeah to to even and i died five times in the in the turf not just so couple of times in the in the ambulance going down um but also um after surgeries yeah uh once i think during surgery and then after surgery it was five times i actually had the conversation with my daughter uh when i was back in australia at christmas and we were talking about when she was sitting with me and i died do you i mean this is a whole other interview but did you have that full experience with the light? And I, I just interviewed someone who, who died as a child and came back and she remembers it. Yep. It's very interesting. Cause I actually having a conversation, um, with Marcus Aurelius Anderson, who's a, who's a friend of mine who would be a great guest for you. He's a fabulous interview. Um, and he and I were having a conversation because he also died twice and, oh. and we both had the same experience, which is not the light. Interesting. It was very much the darkness and very much fighting to get back into the body, uh, having a sense of being separate from the body yeah. and having to make the choice to go back and having to fight to get back inside my own body. And corresponding with that, I'll tell you the story. My daughter, we were in the hospital. I was in the hospital. My daughter was sitting next to me. She was 14 years old at the time. She's now in her 40s. Um, she was sitting there. And she, she said it was like a movie. Yeah. She goes, the hospital's noisy and busy, and it suddenly went quiet. Mm. Like suddenly it's like the volume got turned down. And she said what appeared to be like smoke began to rise out of my chest. But it was not smoke, but it appeared like smoke. And she said she knew I was going to die. And she screamed, no, Dad! And it went back in. And I opened my eyes. Wow. Wow. Well, not quite the light and the, no. oh, oh, come on home from yeah. Grant. No, not at all. Did you feel that in each of the five times? That no. same? So, no. No, I remember fighting to get back in the body two or three times. I'm yeah. not sure if it's two or three, <laughs> but I do remember that quite vividly. Yeah. Wow. Uh, that certainly knocked me off my career. <laughs> I, could, I could imagine, yeah. Uh, so how long does it take you to get back on your feet? And Well, the interesting thing about that is that the, um, you know, you know, you talk a lot about this, about, you know, things that change your life and how they change your life. And I think that one of the great misunderstandings is that people think those events change your life. They don't change your life. That's actually a lie. And everybody I've interviewed about it, when I put it this way, they go, yeah, you're absolutely right. I never thought about it that way, but that's what it is. Those things don't change your life. What they do is they magnify whatever's going on. 
So, you know, Oprah said money doesn't make people uh, mean or generous. It, it's a magnifying glass. It makes people more of what they are. A devastating event like that does more of that. What it brought out in me was it brought out my anger, my frustration, all the issues I'd not dealt with. And by the way, at that point, I'm 32 years old and I've been working on myself since I was 19. So I'm not a newbie. Yeah. Right. So I've done a lot of the work and a lot of deep work. But suddenly all of the stuff that I'd not dealt with that I didn't want to deal with came to the surface. And when people would ask me how you're doing, you know, I was a ghetto kid. I was a leader. I'd been a boxer and a martial artist. You know, I'm not I'm not a wimp. Yeah. So when people would ask me how you're doing, I'd say with my jaw wide closed, I'm great. I'm coming back. Yeah. Right. But the truth of the matter is the evolution of life is there is no back. Back doesn't exist. There's only forward. And it's a trap to think I'm going to go back. You're not going to go back. If you're going to go back, you're going to go down a downward spiral that's not going to work for you. So after saying that over and over and over, and by the way, when I'd be on my own, I'd be very darkly depressed. Yeah. So I'd say that publicly and have the big smile, but dark and depressed. And then what happened was I... um was about nine months into this dark depression and I felt like, honestly, I thought I'm never going to be able to laugh again. I thought like I'd lost my sense of humor. Yeah. Like that had got smashed. And my, my mates asked me to go for a night out and I had my house with them and I'd never really, it's like, it was a waste of time. And this night I had a great night. I laughed my ass off. I had a good time. And for the first time in nine months, I was in a great mood. Why? And I came, I, I don't know why. Just, it just somehow was. something had, it was like, I don't know, it just felt like there was some relief and I felt like there was a possibility of finding happiness again. And I came home and I can clearly remember coming home, opening the door and the light from outside shone in and I could see across the kitchen floor festooned garbage. There was, there were coffee grinds, there were meat wrappers, there were empty cans, there was paper. It was disgusting and it smelled and I was pissed off. Yeah because I knew exactly who the culprit was. And I marched through that house going from pure joy to pure rage, looking to seriously hurt the culprit. And when I got into the living room, I found the culprit curled up on the couch, all comfortable and nice. There was this cat that I hated that had been given to me by a girlfriend as a manipulation. I didn't like the cat. I didn't like cats at all. And this whiny, moany cat was curled up on the couch. It made a big mess again. And I lifted my hand in rage to hit the cat. And about halfway down, I'm sad to say that that's how I felt, but halfway down, something clicked and I went, no. And instead of hitting the cat, I touched the cat. And as I did, I felt, I scooped it up in my arms. It was cold. Mm. The cat was dead. Oh, wow. And I held the cat in my arms and I fell to my knees sobbing, sobbing for a cat I didn't like, sobbing. And I was there, I don't know how long, and I suddenly realized I'm not crying for Tuffy. Yeah. It was the cat. I'm crying for the life that is dead. There is no back. And I wept and wept and wept. And at that moment, I felt so darkly depressed it was not the first bout of suicidal thoughts 
but it was definitely predominant thoughts in that moment. And I got to a place of realizing there was only three paths. Go back. I proved I couldn't do that. Stay where I am in this dark depression and be the victim, which was incredibly seductive as an idea. Like, you know, I don't have to do it, work so hard. I can just give in to this. And the third path was not to go back, not to stay the same, but to find a way to move forward. And what I knew in that moment was I had to find the meaning of my life. Now, again, I'd been working on myself for many years. I started on the spiritual path at seven. I started on the psychological clearing process at 19. But I suddenly realized I had not found my purpose. And that's when I set about finding my purpose. So I was already a speaker, already been a leader, already spoken all over the world. But the direction I knew had to change. It had to be around my purpose and helping other people find their purpose. I'm not sure you suffer from this as a host. But this is the problem I have is when I'm just utterly blown away and mm-hmm. in such a contemplative place from a story like this. And then I'm like, and now I need to think of something to say to move us <laughs> forward. Um, that is so profound. Obviously, the thing I'm trying to understand, and maybe there is no answer, I keep asking why, is what was the catalyst in that moment? And I think... The problem is I'm trying to look for a thing and it wasn't, it was the compounding, right? Of all this time and all of this in this like hyper-focused moment on your knees, right? But, but I, I think that what you just said that Brian is really important for people to get because you're doing what, what we want to do. We want to find a moment. You see, life doesn't change. See in that, just think about it. What, what was different before that moment? I was happy. Yeah. That was what was different. So everything appeared like it could go back to normal. So when these big events happen, when your wife is about to die, when you're about to go bankrupt, when you're about to uh, be sued, your, your partner's about to divorce you, you know, when everything, all this shit has happened, and then suddenly it goes like, there's an exhale, like it can go back to normal. That's the moment where things change. It's not in the devastation. It's in the moment where you make a choice to say, you know what? I'm not willing to accept normal. There is, there is a pivotal moment and there is a choice point. The pivotal moment is falling off the mountain. Mm. The choice point is where things become normal and I can, hey, okay, I can slide back into my old life. No. That's the distinction. That's the powerful point is where no I, I will not. This is the choice point. I'm not going to be the same. I'm going to find my purpose, and I'm going to live my purpose. And the problem with living purpose, if you, and, you know, I didn't have a process. I've developed one that I work with individuals and companies in finding, and it's very powerful. And people go, oh, my God, I get it. But I didn't have that. Mm-hmm. So when I went in search of my purpose, I actually didn't know how to recognize I was living it until I did. And then I did, and it was like, wow. Yeah. And then you reverse engineered the purpose out of the, sorry, the process out of that. I did. Um, the moment where I realized it was I'd been teaching a, a, a three day training 
for the public about finding your purpose. And, um, and I felt like I was on purpose, but there was no like, you know, nobody's like, oh, you're living your purpose. I mean, people would say that, but it didn't, wasn't registering. Mm. It would hit the plexiglass shield, you know? Yeah. And people at the end of a seminar, you know this, you know, people at the end of a seminar will line up and they're very gracious. They're very kind. And yeah. in Canada, they're particularly gracious and kind. And they say, thank you. Well, what I know about myself, I'm smart enough to know myself that to know that I'm not very good at letting that shit in, right? I, I see even the language pattern. I'm not very good at letting that shit in yeah. instead of that good stuff in. So I have to discipline myself to let that in. And what happened was people will line up, and I trained myself that when people would say thank you, I would always say, may I ask you specifically for what? Which was a lot, That would allow me to take it in then. Because thank you, you know, or thank you generally, like, thank you, it changed my life. Like, it doesn't register. It's too yeah. big. Yeah. So I made people tell me specifics. So one, I'm waiting there at the end of this particular event, and I'm lined up talking to these people. I'm exhausted. And one of the last ladies to line up, she was about early 40s, red hair, green eyes. Um, and she says, I wanted to say thank you. And I said, that's really nice. I appreciate that. Would you mind telling me specifically for what? And she was wonderful. She took a pause. And she said, I want to thank you for my grandchildren. Hmm. And I said, that's, that's interesting. You don't look old enough to be a grandma. And she said, I'm not yet. Uh. I, said, then I, I said, I don't understand. And she said, you see over there, that's my daughter. And I said, yeah. She goes, you remember her and her husband? They got married recently. I said, yeah. She goes, you know she's pregnant, right? I said, I do. She goes, well, because of what we've learned here, it's changed our relationship between mother and daughter. It will change my daughter's relationship with her child when the child is born, and it will change my relationship with my grandchild and potentially grandchildren. Thank you for that. Wow. And I, yeah, I, my eyes exploded. I started to, to cry. I actually would begin to shake because in that moment, I knew I was living my purpose. Yeah. Because when you're living your purpose, this is one of the ways we test our purpose, is one of the ways that you know you're living your life on purpose is when you are living your life to impact people's lives who will never know your name, whose names you will never know. Yeah, because it's not about the recognition, it's not about the fame, it's about the impact that you have, which means if you really care about that impact, it, it can have nothing to do with what you gain from it. No. And we all love to gain and we all like to make some money and we all like the applause. I love the standing ovations as much as anybody else. That's not the point. Yeah. You can, you can, you can enjoy that, but it can't be for that. Yeah. So for me, it's for the generations that I will never know. Yeah. Dove, I've got a, a coaching client who I met with right before we talked and he's struggling with purpose and that that's why we're working together. Um, He's coming back to a lot of the, you know, wh why does he want, he's talking about wanting to have success in this thing that he's working on. And, and his reason is so he has a good living. I said, no, 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 that's, that's not the reason. Why do you need to have a good living or why do you want, you know, we, we have to peel that onion and get down to something that's more at the values level. And he said, isn't there like a, a workbook or can you just give me the quiz? I was like, no. I mean, that, that's the thing is there can be structures and approaches to it. But 
it's not fill out these three blanks and then put the three blanks together and you have your purpose statement. It doesn't work that way. And nope. that's, that's the point here. And I think if it did work that way, it would be for the fame and fortune and recognition and whatnot, because those are the kinds of things you can get in a fill in the blanks kind of mathematical equation of purpose. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, like I said, I, I have built an entire process around it. Um, and when I do it individually, like I just did, it's called our ELT process. Um, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> elite leader transformation. And what it is, it's, uh, uh, we just did one on Friday and the person flies in and is with me for up to 24 hours straight. We went 23 and a half hours straight. Um, because we do about, about five to six years of work in a day. Mm. And we get into the deep unconscious process. Now, obviously, when I do that inside of a company, we don't go to that same level of depth, but we can still get to it. But there is a process for getting there, and you can get there. But the ultimate test of it is, do you walk it? Because even if you get your, pro even if you get your purpose, are you willing to live it? Because that's going to take some courage. That's going to take some really willing to step into it and own because here's the thing whatever you think your purpose is as you said it's not making money that's yeah. you know that's that's a bonus obviously you want that but here's the thing whatever you think your purpose is if it doesn't scare the shit out of you it ain't your purpose that's a fair point right yeah. my purpose terrifies me every day and that's good because it pushes me yeah and i mean you in pursuit of it ultimately i mean i think that's part of leaving england that that's part of that pursuit you may have to make some incredibly huge just disruptive choices and that's that's part of the fear you may have to leave everything that you have yeah and you may you know, i mean so people you know talk about uh, fear of failure i don't believe in fear of failure what i don't it? believe in that at all people say there's fear of failure no, no there's not there's a fear of embarrassment. There's a fear of uh, of being exposed. There's a fear of uh, being outside of my group. There's a fear of being rejected. Mm. That's ultimately what it is. So if I fail, they'll laugh at me. If I fail, I won't be accepted by those people. The fear of failure's got nothing to do with anything. But nobody's afraid of fear of, of failing. What we're afraid of is how we'll look to those that we love and respect or whose approval we want. That's it. Fear of failure is a bullshit lie. Yeah. Nobody has it. What we have is, how will I look to the people I care about? If I fail at this, what will my wife think of me? What will my husband think of me? What will my kids think of me? What will my friends think of me? That's the real fear. We're terrified of being rejected because human beings are tribal. We need to belong. Mm. But the thing about being purpose-driven is you are going to get rejected. So you start to take that on. Remember I said, I was looking for my tribe when I was a kid, and I knew I never was going to find it there. And it was only in when I embraced, oh, I'm not going to find it. It doesn't exist out there. I draw people to my tribe. I don't find a tribe. Mm. I find a tribe transitionally, to help me refine my own tribe. But it's me. It's the tribe of Dove. It's the tribe of Brian. Mm. Right? I always say, you know, start a cult that is the cult of Brian where you are your number one follower. Yeah. It's not convincing anybody else. 
It's just like, this is what I stand for. Here's who I am. Here's what matters to me. And here's the difference I want to make. If you want to be part of that in some way, shape or form, wonderful. And if you want to be part of it for a while, wonderful. And you want to go off and do your own thing. Terrific. But I am the leader of the cult of one. Yeah. Of one, not of many. So I, my job is to lead leaders so that they can lead other leaders. The job of a leader is to create more leaders, not to create followers. Yeah. That, so the reason why I like that, the, the cult of one idea, one of the reasons is not everyone sees themselves as a leader or people say, well, but I'm introverted, so I don't fine if you know you're framing yourself a certain way and we can talk about that's a whole other issue but you don't have to be extrovert extroverted or see yourself as a leader for this to matter inevitably you always have yourself so you always need to be able to lead yourself you need to be in touch with your own values so you can be there with yourself and be comfortable with that yeah uh, and again you know the caution here is um Everybody's listening, but so is their ego. Yeah. So everything, everything you learn, your ego learns, including your spiritual bullshit. By the way, um, not you personally, Brian, but a person. Right. You know, spiritual ego is is the is for me is one of the most devastating things we see. It's got that um, that's it's got that uh, political correctness crap up the yin yang going with it. You know, and I'm in favor of being kind and generous and caring and loving to people. Um, but we've got to get past this spiritual ego. I'm more spiritual than you because I took all of Dobbs' courses. I'm more spiritual than you because I, I can cite the Bible. Well, good luck with that because you're probably citing it wrong because it's been translated more times than you could probably translate. Yeah. So there's all kinds of ways to have this spiritual ego. And the problem with 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 thinking that you've got it is that you're coming from an ego place. So let's dial it back and say, you know what? I've got what I need and I'm willing to, and this is a key piece. Stay curious. You heard, you know, cause you're on my show. Yeah. I sign off every show. Stay curious. My friend, stay curious. Mean all it means is you think you're there. You're not. Yeah. Not you, me, we all. Yeah. We, th we have what we need right now, or we think we have what we need right now. And that will change. I mean, it's like you said, you've been on that journey since childhood, really. Yeah. And and you never said there's no point even in that darkest moment you were like haven't I done enough already? Do I need to and so not only are we reductionist and we look for that single moment where everything changes. I'm guilty of that too. Sure. But we, we also we want the work at some point to be done. You know, and that's why I know that that guy was looking for the quiz or the workbook is like can I just do the exercise and be done and have my answer? Well, let's just say there is that. Let's just say you could yeah. do that. That's your answer today. And it may always be your answer, but you need to keep doing the work to ensure that and stay aligned to it and stay connected to it and working with it and all that. It's not, it's not a once and done thing, and we shouldn't be looking for that to be the approach. You're absolutely right. This is the challenge is that we also live in a society where we're looking for an outcome. Mm -hmm. And the journey is not outcome-based. It is journey-based. Yeah. And, and, and the thing about that is to understand, just to stop for a moment. First of all, I'm going to tell everybody listening to, to grasp this, your purpose has never changed. You have the same purpose you've always had. It's not changed, but it deepens. Yeah. It evolves. It deepens and evolves. It doesn't change. It deepens and it evolves. And the manifestation of how you play it out will change, certainly. But the purpose is always the same. Who cares? 
What matters is, are you living it? Are you doing it? Because even if you went through the quiz and you found your purpose and you then sprouted it, now you've just got more spiritual ego bullshit to throw around at people. I found my purpose. I'm here to da-da-da-da. Yeah, but meanwhile, you're a dick and you're not doing anything. Yeah. And you're living a half-ass life or you're, you're, you're selling your soul at every possible turn, but you've got the right thing on the wall. You've had it tattooed on your arm to remind you. Well, so what? You know, I, one of my very first speaking gigs when I first broke out was I was invited to go speak at an AA meeting. And I, and I was invited and I said, you won't like me. And the guy says, no, I really want you to speak. I go, you won't like me. He goes, we don't pay. I said, I'll come speak, but you won't like me. And he goes, no, I really like it. I said, you won't like what I have to say. He says, okay, come anyway. So I went and spoke. And I said, you're a bunch of liars. You're all standing up and telling your story, but none of you are emotionally connected to the story. Mm -hmm. I mean, a couple of new people are, but most people are just repeating the same garbage that allows you to stay stuck. Stop saying the things that keep you stuck. Mm -hmm. Say, here's what I'm doing today. Here's what I what my intention is. Here's my action that will follow that. Here's how I'm accountable to that. Not just that I'm not going to have a drink, but what am I going to do to make my life better? Stop playing the victim of something. This is your life. I totally felt like a victim when I fell. I was pissed at God. I was pissed at everybody and everything. I was pissed at all the years of learning and all the spiritual teachers that I had. I was furious at everybody. And I would have punched anybody in the head who would have said to me, oh, this is going to be a blessing and give me some new age crap. Yeah. Is it a blessing? Absolutely it is. But I can't say that at the time. You couldn't say that when you were going through all your stuff. Yeah. You know it now. Yeah. But at the time, it's a dumb thing to say. Yeah. So did they like you? Did they like me? No. No. Absolutely not. Well, some of them did. I yeah. mean, a couple of them really liked me, but most of them were infuriated because yeah, I, I, I stood up against what they were say, saying. Yeah. Right? It's the reason, reason someone like Jordan Peterson is so unpopular and so vastly popular is because he's willing to say what people don't want to hear. Yeah. Same with Larry Winger and, and me. Right? We say things that people don't want to hear. I understand that's not going to make you, uh, not going to make everybody happy with me. I get that. I understand that. But here, I'm here on the planet to serve the purpose that I came here, which is to raise consciousness. To you know, there's a big piece to it. But I deeply, deeply love humanity, and it's not a loving act to buy a smoke machine and blow it up your pants. Yeah, that's not a loving act. Blowing smoke up people's asses is not a loving act. Sometimes the most loving thing you can do is slap somebody with a wet card and say, hey, wake the hell up. Yeah. This is not the life you came here to live. Yeah, that's very true. Dev, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, and I also don't want to stop talking to you. So that's the, uh, <laughs> that's, that's the trick I'm in. I'm also like furiously writing down the time points when you've sworn so I can take them out. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to slap the E on this one. Because <laughs> my purpose Sorry is not to spend that. three hours taking out swears, but that's okay. Um, there's too much passion in it, and I, I don't want to edit that out. So I, I think we need to we need to let this one go. Um, but thank you for this. It's uh, it's mind blowing stuff. It really is, and the the amount of power and purpose that is in your words, I think that comes through pretty clearly. So yeah, maybe uncomfortable for people to get that challenge. But I think you've shown, A, it's genuine, 
and B, there is something that can be unleashed if you're willing to do that. If you're willing to let it in instead of that natural, I'm offended and so I'm going to stand up against it or I'm not going to take it in. Well, at least consider it because maybe there's something and there's a reason why you're offended. Maybe you should be taking that in and, and just giving that a thought for a minute. You have never grown, but you know, there's all, you know, this. there's all this thing. You've probably said it. I've said it too. You know, put yourself around like-minded people. And what will happen is you will think the same as you've always thought. Do not put yourself around like-minded people. Yes, you want to put yourself around like-minded people in, in showing you um, what is possible and all the rest of it. But you need to put yourself around divergent thinking. You need to put yourself around people who don't think like you. Yeah. I don't agree with Fox News, but I watch it. Not all the time, but sometimes. I don't agree with CNN, but I watch it. Not all the time, but some of the time. Because I want to think in different ways. I watch the BBC. I watch Al Jazeera. I watch RT. I want divergent thinking mm. so that I'm not stuck in my freaking bubble. And whether whatever your bubble is, if you're around that and you surround yourself with people who only think like you, after a while, what you've got is a confirmation act. You're in a sycophantic relationship with yourself where you're yesing yourself instead of going, you know what, what if I'm a dick? What if I actually don't get it? Let me go talk to somebody who, somebody who disagrees with me. Yeah. Some of my best friends have polar opposite political views to me. They're some of my greatest friends because they make me think and they make me go, oh, yeah, I never looked at it that way. Mm. Wow, that's interesting. I had a great lunch on Friday, with, uh, not on Friday, on Thursday with a very good friend of mine who does not agree with me politically whatsoever. I love spending time with him because he respects my opinion. I respect his, and I always come away thinking about my things in a different way, in a more expensive way. Whether it's in business as an entrepreneur, whether it's as a leader, you cannot surround yourself with people who agree with you. President Lincoln surrounded himself with people who thought differently than him, and people think he's a great pre was a great yeah. president. Hmm something to consider yeah i'm tempted to say something about president since then more recent but we'll we'll just stop there <laughs> it's not sure. a political show but it could become one very quickly absolutely um this is this is uh really powerful provocative stuff and that's kind of the point so i i'm very thankful that you i don't think you know any other way to be but you were 100 percent yourself and uh and gave a lot of that so i hope people are uh are moved at the moment where can they keep because they need to get more of this where can they keep finding out about you and and the thoughts and the provocation of self that you're putting out there for people to find their purpose thank you brian i really appreciate that um you can find out more about me at fullmontyleadership.com uh, that's my main website. You'll find my blog there. There's over 500 articles, and not only by me, but by other leadership experts. Uh, you can find access there to my podcast, Stop Barron's Leadership and Loyalty Tips for Executives. It's the number one podcast for Fortune 500 listeners around the world. Um, you can find us on iTunes, of course, on iHeartRadio, and also I have my own TV channels on Roku TV and Binge TV, so you can look for me there. I write for, as you said, many outlets, including entrepreneur.com and uh, all those other places. YouTube channel, Dove Baron, Full Monty Leadership. There's 500 videos on there, all free. You can use them. And on our website, on you can also go there. I want you to know something. I've got something for you. I have a gift for you. So if you go to Full 
montyleadership.com forward slash gift, G-I-F-T. You can, uh, because you're listening to this show, you can, uh, you can get your gift for having listened to the show. And you can find out more about all of that there. And you can find access to my courses and all the other things that we do right there on that site. So those are all the places. And before I, before, I know we're, we're going to come close to the end, but before we do, I just want to say to people, listen, this is really important because you may not know this. Uh, Brian puts a lot of time and energy into bringing you this show. He does his research. He goes out, finds great guests for you, takes his time and the time of the guests, all value, very valuable to bring you great guests that will help you to grow and become a better human being so that you can do every day fully alive and passionate. The guy needs to know that this is a reciprocal relationship. It's not one way. Stop making it one way. Reach out to Brian. Tell him what you got out of this show. Go to iTunes, rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Write to Brian. Tell him what you got out of the show, what impacted you, not just with my show, but with any show that he's done, with any of his fabulous guests. And by the way, you can write to me. Here's my insanity. You can personally email me. My email is dov, D-O-V, at dovbaron.com. D-O-V at D-O-V-B-A-R-O-N.com. People think I'm mad for doing this, but I do it. Write to me and Brian, CC us, and tell us what you got out of the show. And more importantly, what are you going to do with it? Yeah. And if I can help you, if there's some way I can help you, some way I can be of service to you, one on one or speaking for you or working with your company, that's great too. But that's that's not why I'm saying this. If if I can assist you or serve you in some way or shape or form, reach out. But tell us what you got out of this, and make sure you subscribe to Brian's show. This is a great show, and he's doing a great service. This is you're not don't make sure it's reciprocal. You're not it's just being on one end. Serve backwards so that Brian gets to see the impact that he's having. It's important. Thank you. That was my pleasure. Yeah. Now I don't have to. Yeah. Just keep asking at the end in the closing notes to remind people to subscribe. You hit that much better than I did, but I appreciate that. I, I think we can look at all of our relationships as reciprocal if we choose to, and we will get more out of them by putting something of ourselves back in it for the other person as well. Absolutely. It's the best way to have this world work. Um, Dove, thank you so much for the time that you've given, and you've given me a lot of your time outside of the show too, so I'm, I'm appreciative for you more broadly than that. So thank you. My absolute pleasure. Thank you. Are you ready to help me close things up? I am indeed. All right. Today is a new day. So go out there and challenge yourself to listen to opinions that you don't agree with and then question yourself on why you don't agree with them. Are you disagreeing with them because that's the way you're conditioned? If you want to be a better human being, You've got to get better at empathy and compassion. And that's not possible with a closed mind. The most dangerous thing you'll ever do is say, I know that. Open your mind and stay curious, my friend. Stay curious. That's the, uh, the deepest version of go out and do it I've heard yet. I love that. <laughs> that's awesome. Great. Thank you so much, Doug. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate you inviting me on. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. How are you doing? You still okay? Yeah, that is powerful stuff. Like I said, super, super energized, profound, pushing you kind of guy in a very good way. 
but it's a lot. And I hope that everyone is kind of left in this place right now of like, wow, you know, I, I need to re-examine some things about myself. I need to push myself a bit more. Uh, I hope you have a spark that's been ignited in you because it's pretty hard to listen to Dove and not feel that way. So I hope you are. And if you want to keep pushing yourself, head over to doadaybook.com slash the exercise and push yourself a little bit more. Do the exercise, fill it out, think about it, come back to it the next day and the day after that. Question what you put down. Keep pushing yourself. Um, you know, Dove talks so much about curiosity. Like, stay curious, my friend, is how he signs off his podcast. Uh, there's nothing more powerful than curiosity of yourself. And the payback to that is bigger than any payback you'll ever have. So thank you to Dove for being on the show Thank you to all of you for listening, and I hope that something is sparked within you and that I get to say thank you for looking within yourself. So I'm going to close it out. I hope to hear more from everybody. I will bring you more episodes like this one with people who will move you and inspire you. And until then, I will talk to you next week for another episode of the Do A Day podcast. Thanks, everyone.